Hello, and welcome to the September 23rd, 2022 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's been a few weeks now since Mike Riley announced his retirement effective at the end of this year. Mike has, of course, been the voice of Ironman since, well, pretty much since Ironman has been a thing. The response to his retirement announcement has been pretty much as expected. Lots of remembrances, lots of well wishes, and lots of gratitude for everything that he has done over his career. I don't have a whole lot to add to the sentiments that have been expressed on this subject thus far. I myself have competed in seven Ironman races to this point, and Mike was at only three of them, Arizona in 2013 and both Boulder and Kona in 2018. He did call my name in Arizona, but not in Boulder or Kona. At the time I did Arizona, that was my third one, so him calling my name didn't really have the impact that I imagine it might have had if it had been on my first one. I did, however, get a thrill out of him calling my name for my Kona slot in Boulder back in 2018 at the award ceremony, but that's not really a big surprise. I think whoever had called my name that day probably would have given me an equally big thrill. I guess my point is that while Mike Riley's voice is clearly something that a lot of people have come to associate with these events, it's not necessarily going to be missed per se, because it was never the thing that made finishing an Ironman the huge deal that it is. As one poster on Slow Twitch wrote in a thread on this subject in what can only be described as the most Slow Twitch post ever, quote, Mike Riley was a mediocre announcer. You are an Iron Man. No kidding, Mike. Not sure how I would have known that after spending all day completing the distance if you didn't tell me. I thought that this was hilarious in its cynicism and clearly misses the point, but there is a kernel of truth in there. That Besides the obviousness of the call, what Mike has always done is merely provide the exclamation point to what is really the accomplishment. Mike's exclamation was never really what it was all about, and that's why once he is retired, it's not like that accomplishment will be in any way diminished. Of course it won't. Truth be told, I actually think there are other voices who announce at these events who do a much better job than Mike does, but I completely understand the affection that people have for Riley and why he's become the iron voice. It's more about history and emotion than anything else. So as we stand on the precipice of a new era, one without Riley's signature intonations at the finish line of Ironman triathlons, I'm unworried that he will be missed or somehow irreplaceable. No, I think it is more accurate to say that he will be fondly remembered as he should be, and that newly minted Ironman finishers for years to come will still be able to celebrate their accomplishment, no matter who's making that call. On the show today, I'm going to revisit the core temperature sensor that I spoke about a few episodes ago. At that time, I reviewed all of the science that was listed on the core website, as well as what we could find to supplement that, but I was still really unable to make any definitive assessments as to the utility of the device, as it was kind of unclear to me how it was meant to be used, how the information that it provides could be useful, and whether or not it actually provides any benefits to athletes who use it. As I told you then, I reached out to the folks at CORE, and they were good enough to get back to me, and I had a conversation with them that gave me a bit more insight. I also heard from some users of the CORE, and so now, hopefully I can give you all some more advice and a better overview of how it should be used and whether or not this is a smart investment for your training and racing. And that's coming up shortly. 
Later, I am joined by the one and only Joe Wilson. You heard Joe on the program a few episodes ago when he graciously agreed to interview me about my story in this sport. How I went from newbie to middle of the pack to three-time age group winner just this year. Well, Joe is a pretty amazing guy in his own right, and brings an exceptional amount of positive energy and enthusiasm to everyone he meets, including me. So I'm really happy to have him as my guest today and give you all an opportunity to get a chance to know a little bit more about him. Before I get to that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters, including my newest subscriber, Brett Musco. Like many others, Brett decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, he could sign up to support this podcast, and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out every month. If you join Brett in subscribing and decide to do so at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift for you in the form of a pretty cool BOCO TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you too can get access, and maybe this cool gift as well. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thank you so much in advance just for considering. Back in episode 98, I reviewed the science behind the core, the temperature sensor device that you wear and that transmits data to any number of wearables or bike computers. When I reviewed the science on the core, I noted a few things. First, that the website wasn't entirely clear on how the device should be used by athletes who wanted to make use of the technology. Yes, there was the insinuation that the core could help athletes improve heat adaptation and that this in turn would improve performance, specifically in warmer environments. But exactly how this was to be done wasn't really obvious to me. Second, the science on the site and all of the supporting research that we could find dealt with various heat acclimation protocols and heat stress in general. None of them actually looked at the core specifically, so there was no way for me to know if using the device was any better than not using it, at least insofar as under controlled experimental research conditions. Finally, I opined at the time that while the core might be useful for training, I worried about how it could be used during an event. Would an athlete really be expected to slow down in order to allow themselves to cool if that meant being passed or being unable to take the lead even if they were feeling good at the time? In order to try to get answers to these and other questions, I reached out to the folks at CORE, who were more than happy to chat with me. Not long ago, I spoke with Chris Blomfeld-Brown, the product manager for CORE, and he and I spoke for quite a while on all things related to the device. The length of the conversation is indicative not so much that there was anything groundbreaking for me to learn, but rather because I remained really confused for much of that time, and I had to keep asking the same questions repeatedly in order to really understand the technology and how it's best used. In the end, I think that I did get some valuable insights, but the interview in its entirety is simply not the best way to relate this to you. Instead, I'm going to try and explain what I learned and play extracts from our conversation for clarification and additional details. Chris's first point about the core is that it is a way of getting feedback on a metric that we previously could not know, body temperature. And the reason that this is important is because in his words, We need to be sure that we are simulating race conditions in training. So the first thing that a lot of people aren't aware of, maybe after listening to you, the more people are, is when you do exercise, your core temperature goes up. When your core temperature goes up, your threshold power level comes down. That's how it works. 
but you can train, you can, you can lose not as much. And that's what we help people do. That's the main thing that we do. And then for that's in training. And then we use a core sensor to quantify it. So like you use a power meter, we're trying to put the right amount of thermal load into a person, uh, like, a, like use a power meter to put the right physical strain on a muscle for adaptation. If you do too much thermal load, it can be counterproductive. And if you don't do enough thermal load, it's also you're not getting the adaptation you want. So basically, we prescribe, and what a lot of people are doing now is incorporating heat training. So basically, we when we race, we race at an elevated temperature, but a lot of times we're training at a lower temperature. And the idea is you train occasionally at a higher temperature for the adaptation. Because if you never have your core temperature high and you do it in a race, your body's not going to be as efficient. So the idea is to prescribe enough thermal load to get the adaptations. And then once you have those adaptations, enough thermal load to maintain those adaptations. Okay, so far so good. Using the core allows you to ensure that you are able to get your body temperature up to the kinds of levels that you would see in a race, so that you are training it to perform under the right condition. This makes sense to me. The problem is, and I pointed this out, there's no evidence anywhere that this is necessary. All of the heat adaptation protocols out there do not require you to know your body temperature in order to get benefit. Now, here is when Chris made a distinction between heat adaptation and heat training, and I think that it's an important distinction, in his words. I just want to make a clarification. There's uh, what we call heat adaptation and heat training. So we try to separate the two because heat adaptation is generally used when people think about, I'm going to be going to the Tokyo Olympics and I'm going to do heat adaptation because when I get to, I'm training in uh, Sweden and when I'm going to go to Tokyo, the environment's going to be completely different. So it's just adapting to the environment where we say heat training is basically when you're competing, your core body temperature is going to go up and you're, we're going to try to make your body more efficient at operating those higher temperatures. I think this is fine and obviously important. The only problem is that none of the science on the core website, none of it, has anything to do with heat training. It all has to do with heat adaptation. And in fact, reading over the website, they seem to use the terms kind of interchangeably, so I'm sure that I'm not the only one who is continually confused by this. Still, let's focus just on this concept of heat training and what it means. I tried to get a sense of how it's done and how it's supposed to work. Chris wasn't totally clear on the details, but from what I could gather, heat training is done in small amounts, generally on your lighter days. You determine your own personal heat threshold by doing a heat ramp test. This is a test where you basically map out your power production on a bike against your core temperature. As core temperature increases, eventually you're going to reach a threshold at which point your power production just kind of falls off a cliff. I'm sure that you've all experienced something like this. I certainly know that I have. Well, according to Chris, using the core to train 45 minutes at a time below this specific temperature threshold, but still above your baseline, somewhere in the range of 38.5 degrees was the number he gave Celsius is not going to change your threshold at which your power numbers will drop, but it will change, according to him, the amount by which those power numbers are going to drop at that threshold. So let's say that before heat training, you do a ramp test, and once your body temperature hits 39.5 degrees Celsius, your power output drops by 25%. 
according to the people at CORE, doing their heat training protocols can get you to the point where when your body temperature reaches 39.5, your power is going to drop off by 17% instead of 25%. Okay, that sounds great. Now, all I need is some proof. Unfortunately, Chris didn't have any. He had loads of anecdotes, though, and lots of references that were unrelated to this specific claim. And I want to emphasize again, as I did in the program when I first discussed this, heat adaptation is intended to do very much the same thing as this heat training, but through different means. Heat adaptation allows for your body to make changes so that you are less likely to get to 39.5 degrees in the first place. And again, you don't need the core for that. And Chris was very quick to admit this. He doesn't deny that heat adaptation is a very valuable process to undertake. He does say that heat adaptation is temporary and does reverse if you don't keep going at it. And this is true. He says that by incorporating heat training into your program, you can actually keep the benefits of heat training longer than you can for heat adaptation. Again, sounds great, but also, again, there's no proof. There's no science to back anything that he's saying up. I have to take him at his word. This then brought us to the subject of how the core could be used in racing. And here, Chris gave me an explanation that both made a lot of sense and finally helped me understand not only how this tool could be useful, but more importantly, for whom and specifically in what kind of circumstances. We can also look at, I'm talking road racing now, not maybe triathlon at the moment. So say they've got a big climb coming up. 10, 15 Ks before, they're going to be sending guys back, trying to cool down their their GC riders, trying to pre-cool before they get to those areas. Because if you can start that climb uh, at 38 instead of 38.5, and your temperature is going to go up 1.5 degrees, the guy who started lower is going to have a little bit of advantage at the top. And so it's putting cooling strategies in based on feedback, based on data, also looking at power drop-off, looking at where they can do more cooling efforts, uh, how, to, how to do some kind of active strategic cooling uh, and also giving riders the biofeedback because a lot of times you're sitting in Peloton, you're not aware that your temperature is as high as it is. So it's the biofeedback, uh, like 15 Ks before the rate, the climb, you're, you're looking down and you say, oh, I'm all set, that's okay, or I'm a lot higher than I should be at this point in time. And so I've got some biofeedback that I can start trying to proactively do something. Okay. This totally makes sense, right? Your team Yumbo Visma, you know that 10 to 15 kilometers up the road is the Col de Galibrier or some other massive climb on the Tour de France. And Vingegaard is set to make a big effort to try and take this climb and go for the yellow jersey because Tadej Pogaccia has been looking great the whole way. And Vingegaard knows that his body temperature is getting a little bit high, so he doesn't want to push in the 10 to 15 kilometers leading into the climb. So his team, knowing this information, is now going to make sure that they control the pace, they control the tempo of the peloton, so that Vingegaard can cool down to the point that when he reaches the base of the climb, his body temperature has cooled enough so that when he starts, he is in a better position to attack that climb. And so that when he gets to the top, his threshold temperature hasn't gotten to the point where his power numbers are going to drop. This intuitively, and now that it's been explained to me, makes a lot of sense. But you can also hear Chris say, not for triathlon right now, because triathlon being an individual sport, 
where you have to rely entirely on yourself. I mean, if you are heading to the climb to Javi and you are either in the lead or have a chance for the lead, you're not going to back off because your temperature is maybe reading a little bit higher, especially if you're feeling fine or if you have a chance to win. I, I think that it's pretty clear to me that this tool has some clear value for professional cycling, maybe even age group cycling and teams. But when it comes to triathlon, I'm not sure that I really see the case use for it just yet. Now, to be fair, Chris kept coming back over and over again to the concept that the core adds value to athletes who use it by providing them with biofeedback, this idea that having the metric of their body temperature is giving them more information about themselves, more information about how their body is working, just like a power meter or a cadence sensor. And to that, I say, well, again, it's very nice it's, it's great to have metrics, but if you can't do anything about a metric or if a metric isn't providing really useful data, then do you really need to have it? And this particular metric comes at a cost. The core sensor costs over $225, 226 to be absolutely correct. It's just the sensor itself. You then have to buy a uh, band that you attach the sensor to. And it wasn't clear to me on the website how long the sensor lasts for because they actually sell the sensors in uh, bunches. So uh, it's not clear if like one sensor is good for life or if you have to buy one of these every six months or something. You also need to have some way of making sure that the sensor has good contact against your skin. There seem to be these adhesive patches that you're supposed to put on your skin and then attach this core sensor to. All of this was a little bit nebulous. Again, their website is not fantastic in terms of making all of these things totally clear. They do offer a really good community where you can interact with other athletes. And for me, I think that is where probably the details are likely to be sussed out. Now, most of the community is made up of cyclists. As I said, I don't see a lot of triathletes making use of this. And I wanted to get a sense from people who actually have used this in the real world to see if this was something that was bringing any value to them. So I asked in the the private Facebook group for the TriDoc podcast, whether or not anybody was using this. And I heard back from a couple of people, both of whom said that they thought the device was interesting. It provided them with exactly what Chris said, some biofeedback. It gave them their temperature, but they didn't really know what to do with that information. They didn't feel that it was adding anything to their training. Now, I will say that neither of the athletes I spoke to uh, had a clear indication of doing the heat training because, again, I think the core is not doing a great job of educating people. I think they are working very well with the professionals, but when it comes to age groupers who are taking up this device, I think they leave a little bit to be desired in terms of getting information into the hands of those people as to how to really use this device. The last person I spoke to is Nathan Dortman. Nathan is a top-tier age grouper, really an elite athlete, almost a professional, and he's also a Triathlon Australia performance coach. He has been using the core for quite a while now and had gotten it in anticipation of doing Kona back in 2020, but of course, that never came to pass. Instead, he's been using it now in his preparation for Kona this year, and we spoke for some time, during which he related 
some of the pitfalls that he's noticed with the device. First and foremost, it tends to have some connectivity issues and tends to drop out with his wearables. He's also noticed that the battery life isn't quite as good as he would hope it would be. But when it comes to actually using the device and getting some actionable metrics and data from it, he's a little more positive about it. He believes that it's been helping him do his heat acclimation training in preparation for racing in Kona. Specifically, he's living in the Southern Hemisphere, so they're just getting into spring, and as a result, the weather hasn't been quite as hot there. So doing his training has been difficult uh, to know whether or not he's getting his body into a warm enough state to actually get a benefit in terms of being able to prepare himself for his race in Kona. By having the core on, he can see how much time he's spending with his body above a threshold temperature and watch as his performance in terms of heart rate and even power has improved over time with his body in that elevated temperature state. Now, whether or not he's actually seeing improvements in performance, he can't say because he's just been using the device this last month or so, and he's not sure whether or not this is going to translate to improved heat acclimation or improved performance versus not having the device at all. The other thing he told me is that he has not really decided if he's going to respond to the data that he gets when racing. I propose to him that if he was running into the energy lab and was getting feedback from a spectator that he was leading his age group by a minute and noticed that the core was giving him a warning that his body temperature was soon going to cross the threshold, would he then follow that metric and slow down and take the time to cool himself, knowing that he would likely not be in first place anymore? And his response to me was that if he doesn't slow down, there is the likelihood that he's going to overcook. And instead of finishing in first or second, he might end up finishing way out of the top 10 because he exceeds his heat threshold, runs into problem with being able to perform, to continue to take in calories. On the flip side of that, we all know that the people who take risks are the people who generally go on to win if they're successful with those risks. So he is unsure whether or not he's going to respond to that data when uh, the chips are down, and that is something that is going to be determined. So I think... At the end of the day, I'm not necessarily in any better of a place to be able to give you advice on whether or not this device is something that you should really be using and whether or not it can actually improve your performance. I think that the way that Nathan has used it and the way that others have explained it to me as being potentially useful is where... You are training for an event in a warm environment and you yourself are not able to do training in a warm environment. Using the core can give you feedback that lets you know that you are actually getting your body temperature up to a level where, yes, you are stressing yourself and therefore doing the work necessary to do heat acclimation as well as getting the heat training done. Whether or not the heat training that the core suggests or the people at core suggests is beneficial and whether or not that translates into performance improvements we just don't know. There's no data out there, and uh, all of it is anecdotal at this point, and I can't say for sure whether or not this is worth the $300 plus investment that it's going to take in order to find out. Personally, I'm not ready to make that 
plunge just yet. I think that I need to see a little bit more science or at least speak to some more people who have used this device and definitively seen performance benefits that they can show before I'm ready to say that, yes, this is something I would use. So what do you think? Have you used this device? Have you seen performance benefits that you can really measure with metrics? Is this something that you're considering using? And has this conversation swayed you one way or the other? I'd love to hear from you because I got to say, in all of the things that I have reviewed, this is one that I really don't feel like I have a great handle on. And I really don't feel like I can say one way or the other definitively. So I've given you all a lot of information. I've given you some anecdotes from people who have used it. And at the end of the day, I'm kind of going to leave it uh, up to you as to whether or not this is something you think is a worthwhile investment. I'd love to hear from you. So please do send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or drop me a comment in the private group on Facebook for the TriDoc podcast. I'd love to hear what you're experience has been, and I'll share it with uh, the rest of my listeners. You may think that you don't know my guest for today's episode, but I'm guessing that you probably do and just don't realize it. Joe Wilson has been around the sport for a long time and has pretty much made it his mission to ensure that everybody knows that this is supposed to be fun. And if it isn't, then you're clearly doing something wrong. If he isn't out there competing somewhere up at the front of the age group ranks, then he's out on the course wearing a Speedo and a mullet wig and making a ton of noise to make sure that you are loved and appreciated and that you have an incredible cheering squad of one who just happens to sound like many. Well, Joe's antics in person and on social media have not gone unnoticed. He was featured in a front page article on the Slow Twitch website that did a really nice job of capturing the man behind the toothy grin, and I a much smaller deal than Slow Twitch, still managed to track him down in Ironman, Indiana, and then again in Chattanooga, where we got to know each other a little bit before I recently had him on the program to interview me. This time, he's back to be in the usual seat that my guests occupy, and that's the one where I ask the questions, and he gets to tell all of us a little bit more about himself. So for the second time in a relatively short while, I'm really happy to welcome Joe Wilson to the TriDoc Podcast. Thanks so much again for being here. Jeff, thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited. All right, let's get right to it. I want to hear a little bit about your history in the sport. How did you come to be in triathlon? Just no different than anybody else. I bought a bike, was running, was out of shape, overweight, all this stuff. And I said, I like to do triathlons. I did did a couple when I was in college. And this was 20 years ago. And so I go to 20 years ago, I get do a triathlon. And I don't even get on the age, get on the podium or in my age group, don't want an award, nothing. I'm in the back of the pack. And so I signed up for this triathlon, had no idea how many people were there. And I got fifth overall. And I was like, whoa, maybe I'm pretty good at this. And so I got an age group award. I won my age group. And I was thinking I was like pretty awesome. And so then I was addicted. But Come to find out there was like 30 people at the triathlon, <laughs> but I didn't care. I didn't care. I'm like, it's my first age group award. I was like, yeah. So I did some triathlons in 2014 and then it was like, cause I was super competitive, so serious. I loved the competition and I wasn't winning any age group awards or anything like that. And then it just, it just drove me. It was like, it lit the fire and I wanted to get better. I wanted to get better. And then Finally, like 2015, 2016, like I got on a team or all three sports team and thinking I'm like really good. And I started getting better and better, but it just, 
it was just a process. So my history was I was in the army, ran in the army, rode bikes with some friends when I lived down in St. Pete. It wasn't until 2014 that I really started jumping into triathlon. Like seriously. That, that's your background as a runner? Yeah. I was more of a chess player growing up. I'll never, <laughs> hey, so in eighth grade, my best friend was faster than me and he probably weighed a hundred pounds more than me. And I was the slowest kid in eighth grade. Yes. So, yes. so when did the running come? Because I know you are a very, you're a very prodigious runner. You're a Boston qualifier. I've seen your 10K times. And when did the running come for you? I, they, you know what they say? They just say consistent. It just builds and I like to run. And I just, year after year of running, I just get faster and faster. Because I'll tell you, when I was in the army, I wasn't that fast of a runner. You have to do, as a 17 year old, I remember you had to do 17, no, not 17, two miles and 11 minutes and 56 seconds. That was like pie in the sky for me. I didn't know the 100% that you could get. I knew the 60%. And that was like a 1554. And that's all out sprinting to the finish line and dying. And that, that, that was kind of me. The Army forced me to run. And then when I got out of the Army, I just enjoyed running. It was a way to lose weight, try to keep weight off. But my weight went up and down all the time. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's funny now. It's, as I'm 47 as of last week. And whenever I do 5K, I'll hit the two-mile mark. And I'll be like, wow, that was faster than the fastest two-mile I ever ran in the Army. And that's in the middle of 5K. <laughs> so, I, so to answer your question, it's just I mean, people don't want to hear that because it's not sexy. It's I just put a lot of miles on these legs, try to keep them healthy, no, no injuries over the years. Luckily, knock on wood, changing the shoes out regularly. I run in Hoka's, racing the Nikes. Honestly, those are those shoes are like cheating. You can truly feel a difference. So, yeah. yeah. I feel yeah. the same way. And like me, I know you've talked a lot about swimming being a frustration perpetually. It's tough as an adult learner. What are you doing to try and address the swim? Oh, so I've been part of a master's group since 2014. And I, if you go look at Facebook memories, it says, oh, I'm getting faster and faster. And then you look and say, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Same time. It's, <laughs> but I, I've come to a realization that I'm always going to be middle of the pack swimmer or front of the middle of the pack swimmer. And then I'm going to have to bike them down and I'm going to have to run them down. That's the only way I can do it. Yeah. 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 I swim a ton. Um, I swim a ton. I swim probably about 10 to 15,000 yards a week. And sometimes I get faster and sometimes I get slower and it's frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, same. Tell me about triathlon, Joe, because that's your alter ego. And yeah. I think the way a lot of people know you. So triathlon, Joe, for those of you who don't know, an omnipresent force on the Facebook groups for any race that Joe is, is uh, participating in. And he's also got a very entertaining Instagram feed. So where did triathlon Joe come from and what's his mission? Well, triathlon Joe was like... Back in 2013, 2014, when I would work out, it was like, hey, go into the gym today. And that was when people were like, I don't want to know that you're going to the gym every time. And so I said, hey, Facebook allows you to make pages. And so I said, I'll make a triathlon Joe page. And it was funny, Jeff, because it asked you all these kind of questions. And the first question is, this, are you a public figure? And I said, yes, I actually, I think I am. <laughs> and then Facebook says, are you sure? 
And I was like, okay, no, I'm not really a fit. <laughs> that was just a way for me to divide my like regular life and then the triathlon Joe persona. And so I started posting all my triathlon stuff to that page. And anybody that wanted to follow me could see all my triathlon stuff because Let's be honest. Most people don't want to see your their Facebook feed with you doing all this stuff on triathlon or working out or whatever. It's only like my close friends. And that kind of, it started out as a joke, but then I just got on some of these Facebook groups and started, people get on these Facebook groups like the Chattanooga page. And one, yes, I have a wealth of knowledge for that race because I know that race inside and out. And I've done that race ever since 2016. I've ridden that course a million times. But then you start getting the same kind of over and over again. And people will get frustrated. And I just like to have fun with it. So I would tell people, bring two two buckets and one milk crate. They want transition bags. And if you say something so outrageous, people obviously will not. People obviously know that you're joking. People took it on as laughing at whatever I was saying. And then, and because I would ask you really stupid questions, I felt like, other people would then feel safe and comfortable asking questions they need to know about. I remember the first time I ever did a full distance triathlon and they gave me these the bags. It was the beach of battleship. And I was like all prepared for it and ready to go. And it had my number was 140. And I thought the bags because it said 140.6 had everybody's individual number on it. I thought this was so cool. <laughs> I had no idea that was the distance. You can ask those kind of questions anytime I'm on a Facebook group because you'll get some people who are like tired of hearing the same kind of questions, but there are always newbies on there. And so I like to make sure people feel welcoming and are safe and comfortable asking questions. So I, that's why I'll jump on there and ask the dumbest questions. Did everybody's bag come with their individual number on it? <laughs> And just to clarify, he's what Joe's talking about is when you get the bag, it actually says Beach to Battleship 140.6. And Joe's number was 140. So he just thought that every bag had their individual number printed on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. It's funny when I first, I think the first group I joined that you were in was for Indiana. And I kept seeing you and I guess Kyle... Tolliver, I guess his name was. Anyway, yeah. going back and forth. And it took me a little while to figure out that you guys were joking because it wasn't totally clear to me, <laughs> at least at first. These guys are going at it pretty hard. And then I, it took me a little while to realize that you were joking. And I often wonder, so some of the newbies, I almost wonder if you're stressing them out at first because with all the swim is canceled stuff. And eventually, I'm sure they come around. and they, People they, get it very quickly. And people always want to know what the water temperature is. Is it going to be wet? Uh, is the swim going to be canceled? Yeah. And so... I just, I enjoy having fun with that. And even me sometimes, like there's a picture of me in 2015, the first time I ever did a 70.3, I'm backstroking because I freaked out in the swim. And so that's a lot of people's scary part of the race. And so I try to make sure people feel very comfortable asking questions about the swim. Because we've all been there. And absolutely. Yeah. And I applaud you for it. I also applaud you for putting yourself out there on the course in a Speedo and a mullet <laughs> wig. Where'd that come from? Okay. So a year ago, a friend of mine, she was doing World 70.3. And she said, do you want to come out and cheer? And I said, I've never been to a race where I wasn't racing. And I was like, if I'm going to go out there and race, not race, I'm going to make sure I'm cheering for everybody. So back up, 2015, Augusta, 70.3, I did my... First 70.3, and after I was done, I said, oh, 
I did, had a pretty good race and I feel pretty comfortable. But then I look around and there's still people out there on the course. And it's like hours later and I'd already finished, changed, everything like that. And I noticed there was all these people and nobody, it was just, it was dead silence. Nobody's cheering. Everybody's like walking through them, trying to get back to their car. And I'm like, no, if you're out on the course and I'm around, I'm going to be cheering for you. And so I sit out there for two hours. My ex-wife was very upset at me because she's like, let's go. And I'm like, no, I'm going to cheer all these people on. And so I sat out there for two hours after my race was over and I started cheering for these people and they loved it. People came up and asked me, told me later, hey, appreciate you being on the course cheering for us. And so I always said, if I had enough energy after my race was over, that I would be out there cheering. And I'd never really been to any races where I was not racing. And so last year I had an opportunity to go to Worlds in St. George. And I decided that if I'm going to be out there, I'm going to film while I can because I enjoy videoing people or videoing triathlons. And I'm also going to get out there and cheer people on. And so what's what's the best way to cheer people on? Hey, I have this mullet wig from a Halloween a few years ago and Speedo is pretty funny too. So I got out there in a mullet wig and a Speedo. And my thought behind it is, yes, I'm going to be cheering people on. But if I can make people laugh or smile or something for just a few seconds, that gets them out of that, this hurts right now zone, right? And yes, I like a clown on the course, but and I say, sometimes I say funny things, something, sometimes I say sarcastic things because I don't want people to tell me, you got this. Because when I'm in a right. pain cave, I want to hear something yeah. else. Don't yeah. tell me you got this. No, I don't got this. I've got another eight miles to go and I'm dying right now. I don't yeah. have this. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but I ain't got it. And so I did that and had a great time with it. People looked at me like I was an alien. and But then people started coming up to me like, hey, my friend's coming through. Can you cheer for them? Hey, my, this person's coming through. Can you cheer for them? And I just... It's so much fun. And then I added a megaphone to it when I did the one in Chattanooga. And it's funny because Worlds is one thing. Chattanooga, downtown Chattanooga, I stripped down to my Speedo and people were looking at me like, what is this dude doing? (laughs) But I will say this, Jeff, because I stood out so much at Worlds that Heather Jackson's coach was at Chattanooga the following weekend. And he comes over to me and says, where's your Speedo? Because I was still waiting for people to start showing up. And I was like, oh, you remember that? He said, yeah, I remember that. And uh, so we stood there for two hours next to each other. And I'm like, this guy is a very knowledgeable coach in the industry. Yes, I'm coach, but everybody has skill sets or knowledge. And I picked this guy's brain for two straight hours. And he ran me down the exact nutrition plan I needed for Indiana and I hit it perfectly. Yeah, that's a so great be, story. That, so I love that course. story. Yeah, yeah. So Be, being, well, on being on the course, being noticeable, and being yeah. po- a positive influence, and yeah. all of those things, you know, lead to opportunity. That, I love that story, and I, I do want to just leverage that to talk about Indiana because I think your experience in Indiana is an example of adaptability about how <laughs> so many things can go wrong, and yet you could still find success. So, for anybody who doesn't know, Joe finished fifth in his age group and got a slot to Kona. Congratulations! That's Ooh. Uh, your first time on a podium at an Ironman and your 
first slot to Kona. So quite excited about that. But it was not without a lot of things going wrong. I think I always tell my athletes that I coach, I'm like, listen, guys, we don't try new things on race day. Race day is not the time to experiment. You want to make sure that you've prepared for every eventuality and experimentation with new things on race day is a recipe for disaster. Joe Joe doesn't prescribe to that philosophy. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Jeff, I have, the first time I did Chattanooga, I switched, new, switched wheels the day before. Almost broke my back brake. The back wheel rubbed the entire time. I couldn't figure out why all these people were passing me. I have... Tried new water bottles, tried new nutrition, tried this. I don't know why I can't not get out of my head. I'm always like, oh, let me try something new on race day. And so I got to tell you, of all the things of all the things that people have tried on race day, the one that you tried in Indiana is definitely the first time I've ever heard of that. Joe decided he would try a one by on race day on his bike. Now, for those of you who don't know, a one by is where you have a single front ring, you don't have a derailleur. Joe rides a bike with a two by. So he has both a big and a little ring, but he just switched it to a one by removing the front derailleur. So I want to hear the whole story about what possessed you to come up with this idea and why you did it and then what happened <laughs> so i was on slow twitch did a quick search and people were talking about you can take your two by and make it a one by and i said huh i said indiana's flat and i don't need the small ring i'm not gonna ever ride the small ring i'm gonna be in the big ring and if I take off the front derailleur, sure, that probably will save watts. And so I was like, yeah. And, and I'm curious, the people on Slow Twitch were suggesting this would save how many watts? Who knows? Maybe yeah. five. <laughs> five watts. I, I think that I, might who, be an exaggeration. It probably is an exaggeration, <laughs> yeah. right? And so I'm like, okay. And I did that and rode. So there's a place here in Atlanta. It's called Columns. It's a two and a half mile. Or it's a five mile loop. You ride from one end. There's no stop signs. It's a light in a parking lot. So you do a little loop. And so people will constantly ride. I've seen people do 100 miles on this five-mile wow. stretch. And it's flat. There's one foot of elevation, if that. And so I rode the bike out there one time for 15 miles. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. And so I got to Indiana with my one by. And it was ready to go, rocking and rolling. And then mile 40... We hit Chip Seal, and Chip Seal caused my bike to go from the big ring to the small ring. <laughs> and, and now I you have no way of getting it back. <laughs> and I have no way to get it back to the big ring. And so I rode the next 70, what is that, 74 miles I, or 72 miles in the small ring. And by the way, because we were on that chip seal, I had my front end ready to go, all locked down. By the way, if I ever work on a bike, it's not going to be, it's not going to end well. And so my aero bars go all the way down. So I am I'm went from a 45 degree angle, hands near the face to where... I look like the early 2000s and the arrow bar is all the way down <laughs> below arms straight out was the most uncomfortable 70 miles I rode and, I, and the front end was loose and I'm just like, please, God, don't crash. And then also, I don't tell I didn't tell a lot of people this story, but that Wednesday before the race, I couldn't sleep because I had a sore tooth. 
And I said, just get me through, just get me through the race. Just get me through the race. I'll come back and take care of it. You're you're talking to the dentist when you're saying that. Yeah. No, no, I'm, no, I'm talking to myself. You're talking to yourself. Okay. Yeah. On Wednesday. And then, so I drove up there Wednesday. I got two hours of sleep, stayed with a buddy of mine. Thursday night, I got maybe two and a half hours of sleep. I bought every single thing from Walmart to try to numb the pain or whatever. Nothing was helping. Nothing was helping. I had to sleep sitting straight up. And so Friday, I go to emergency dentist, and the dentist couldn't figure out what was wrong with my tooth. He probably needs to have his license revoked, but he couldn't find <laughs> out. <laughs> couldn't find out. <laughs> couldn't find out what was wrong with my tooth. And lo and behold, it was a. I had a really bad cavity on the wisdom tooth in the back that if he had pulled it that Friday afternoon, I wouldn't be able to race on Saturday. And so I went back, he gave me some medicine, got another two and a half hours sleep and then did the race. And so when they say you make sure you get enough sleep, sometimes that's right. And other times it's, I did nine hours and 50 minutes. So something went right. So I did the race, came back to Atlanta Monday morning had that tooth just yanks and um, mm. yeah. wow! Talk about the poster boy for everything going wrong and still <laughs> everything going. So <laughs> that was quite a remarkable ability to succeed despite all of the those headwinds. How did you feel on the run? With it's funny the moment. The only time the tooth hurt was when I laid down. For your legs too. And I mean, your position just after being in the small ring and not being in the position you were used to because of the aero bars. It's funny because, so I get off the bike and last 10 miles, we're riding on this greenway and then you're riding back in. And I think that because I rode the small ring and spun out so much, it actually saved my legs hmm. for the run. Yeah. And so my coach told me at the time, Joe, I want you to go out and run the first mile, 10 miles, and 10 minute, a 10 minute mile pace, see if you can do it. I couldn't do it. And I'm out there running like 730s and it just kept going. And I thought, eventually I'm going to hit the wall like I do every single race. But I was taking in fluids, I was taking in gels. And I just liked the way that race was set up because it was out and back twice. And so I told myself, get the mile 20. And I got the mile 20. And I said, hey, I still feel pretty good here. I can keep running. And I was able to hold off sixth place and get fifth. So, Yeah, we had funny different experiences because I, I found that course to be relentless. We had similar bike splits. You were faster than I was by, I think, 10 minutes. And then on the run, I finished the first lap of the run and I was just ready to be done. I did not <laughs> want to do that second lap. And then I got a split that showed that I was in, I think I was in third at that point and i was like oh crap i have to keep running because <laughs> there was no resting for me and i read your story where you said that you learned that you were in fifth and you had a very comfortable cushion on six so that you were able to just take it easy at that point so we had different experiences where i knew i had to keep pushing and you were like oh i'm good i could go now <laughs> so i but you still had a remarkable time so sub 10 hours on a course like that is fantastic so you've got I, your first slot yeah I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. One really nice thing about that race is that because I was so active on the board with the Facebook group that every single mile, every single aid station, I was hearing my name called. Joe, you got this. Good job. Yeah. And so I never felt like I, I like people cheering for me just like I like cheering for other people. 
And so I felt like the huge community pushed me. No question. Hearing your name called out by people, by random people is Mm. incredible. I actually, that's one thing. I don't think they're going to go back to printing your name on the bibs, which I really think is too bad because that was something that was always nice that when people called out your name and it didn't matter who they were, just hearing your name called by by random people was always a nice thing. And I miss that. And I understand why. They're probably not going to go back to doing that, but uh, it's too bad. So you have your slot to Kona. And I know that we talked about this a little bit when we talked last time. Just curious. What are your, how are you approaching that race? What are your thoughts? It's to me, Kona is almost a victory lap. That's good and bad. Good because I don't feel like I had too much pressure. Bad because I feel like I trained, I'm training, I trained harder for Indiana than I I will for Kona because I was head down power through for Indiana. That was the A race, 100% committed to that race. Whereas with Kona, I have realistic expectations. I'm not going to get on the podium yet. There's a lot of people faster than me, but that was always the goal just to do Kona. So I'm I'll be honest with you, Jeff, I'm struggling a little bit right now. I can definitely do the training and that's where I'm at right now. Just I'm checking the boxes. Whereas last year I was enthusiastically hitting all the workouts, doing all the things. And so I've got to step back a little bit right now and figure out these next 10 weeks to make sure that I are not just checking the boxes, doing all workouts like I should be doing them. Because now I'm starting to feel a little bit of pressure because, yes, I'm very competitive and there's some competition that's going to be there. That No, I'm not going to get top five, but if I get 34th and my friend gets 30th, then I'll never hear the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. That's not a bad thing. Are you planning on cheering in the usual regalia on the women's race? Well, it's funny because I was talking to a friend of mine and he's, oh, I'd sign. I'd totally do that with you. However, I've got to race two days later. So I've got to figure out, yes, I definitely want to do that. And I probably will show up like that in my attire for the underwear run, mullet wig and underwear. But, and maybe I will be out there some on the run course on Thursday, but I still have a race on Saturday too, so... I feel the same way when I have gone to 70.3 worlds, when there's, it's the women's race one day, the men, the next, I have gone out and cheered the women on, and I will do that again this year at St. George, but it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's only four hours. So it's a little bit shorter day. Ironman obviously is a much longer day, but that being said, it's not like you're out there the whole time. It's not like they're out for the bike for six hours. So it's not like you have to be standing out there the whole time and marathon. You can be choosy about when you want to be there. You hang out on a Lee drive for a little while and maybe go check back, go lie down for a bit and then come back out for when it gets a little bit cooler later in the evening kind of thing. I'm still deciding how I'm going to manage that, but I will definitely be out there. I have too many friends that are racing on the Thursday. So I will definitely be out there in some form and I will certainly connect with you to make sure that uh, we see each other. Bring your speedo too. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's, uh, we have, it's amazing how many continue to be surprised at how many people I keep realizing are going to be there. And it's really fun to know how many like previous guests of this program are all going to be there. And I look forward to reconnecting with them all. It's going to definitely be a fun few days. Joe, uh, 
what more do you think you have left to accomplish in the sport? I think Kona will be my last Ironman for 100% sure about that. I don't, I still, I enjoy triathlon because I, it's, I'm still racing at a high level and I can go out and compete and run a 36 minute 10K off the bike in an Olympic distance. But, and with that said, but once I start slowing down, not hitting any PRs, do I start doing other things? Do I start doing trail runs? Do I start doing ultras as far as like ultra runs? I don't know if I'll ever get to that point. I just, I enjoy triathlon. That's where it is. I don't know if I have anything else to accomplish. I've won my age group by 10 minutes going away. I've been the first amateur across the finish line and chatting at Augusta. Um, and I've won races, small races, but I've won races. And now the biggest, the final goal was Kona. And so I'll do that this October. Now, I don't want to be that guy who does Kona and then never competes in triathlons again because I feel like I, I love the sport and it's given me so much mentally, physically. It's just, and it's returned so much to me. Everything I've put into triathlon has returned so much to me tenfold. I've made so many friends. People always, people our age are always like, how do I make new friends? Sign up for a triathlon. You'll make tons of friends. Just, you can't be shy in a triathlon because you've got to talk to other people. So, yeah. I cannot think of a better way to finish than that, Joe. That really sums it up. And I agree with you. I'm not going anywhere either because I, for the longest time, winning my age group was like a really big deal. I've done that now. And you know what? I feel no less motivation to continue because I love this sport so much because it gives me so much back. And like you, the people I meet and the friends I've made through it, like yourself, are really what keep me so interested and so motivated to continue with it. So it doesn't matter when I slow down, when I don't win my age group anymore, when I'm not, when I'm just a shriveled raisin who can only participate. I don't care. I will continue to love the sport because of the people who are in it. And it's people like yourself. Joe, thank you so much for being here again on the podcast. I really always enjoyed speaking with you. And I'm really looking forward to spending some time with you in Kona in just 10 short weeks. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it, man. Hey, and let's keep each other motivated until Kona. That's it. All right. Yeah. Take care, Joe. Have a great one. You too. Thanks. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or... Join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit TriDocCoaching.com or LifeSportCoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash try.podcast. 
The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.